Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Frederick, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Salvador Salinas about his new book, Land, Liberty, and Water, Morelos After Zapata, 1920-1940. Hello, and welcome to the show, Salvador. Hi, thank you for having me, Ethan. I was wondering if you could begin the show by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Houston downtown. I've been here for uh, four or five years, and I completed my uh, PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. And prior to that, I had uh, completed a master's degree at Oxford University in Latin American Studies. And um, just a little bit about myself personally, I'm I'm from North Carolina, and uh, that's where I was born and raised, right outside of Charlotte. And uh, my father's from Mexico, and my mother's from the United States. And uh, my father was actually from... um, uh, Cornavaca Morelos. So that's where there's a little bit of personal connection to the region that I ended up writing the book on. Well, that really leads into my next question, which is, how did you come to write about this book as, as well as what the book is about? Well, I was always familiar with Morelos, um, having traveled to Cornavaca during the summers when I was a child. Uh, my grandparents lived there. Um, but of course, you know, when I was young, I had no idea I'd end up writing a book about the region. And um, also, you know, when I was in high school, I, um, I worked on a dairy farm. For, um, for several years as a teenager. And um, just working on the dairy farm, I think, uh, exposed me to agriculture and um, rural life. And I really enjoyed it, but you know, still didn't know I would, this would be what I would end up studying. And it really wasn't until I was an undergraduate and I was taking the History of Mexico course. And um, the professor, of course, gave a lecture on the, the Mexican Revolution. And um, after class one day, I had a question and speaking to him after class, and I just asked him, you know, he had spoke about the Zapatistas, and I asked him, uh, what happened in Morelos afterwards? And uh, he didn't have really a good answer. And he basically said, we don't know exactly. There hasn't been any uh, good uh, historical studies based on archives uh, on Morelos in the 1920s and 30s. And so, um, you know, a light bulb went off at that moment. And I was already thinking about going to graduate school. And um, by the time I, I um, began my master's program, um, the second year, of course, was dedicated to uh, research and writing the thesis, and I had run it by my, my advisor at the time, Alan Knight. Um, would Morelos, a study of Morelos in the 1920s and 30s, uh, be possible? And uh, he thought it was a good idea and um, ended up writing the master's thesis just on um, politics in the 1920s. And I uh, did a summer research uh, year, or a summer of research in, I think, 2006. And um, it was clear from that first summer of research that there was a lot of material on Morelos, more than I could, you know, I was just collecting material and there was more than I could actually review and so, uh, for the master's thesis. So I had leftover documentation. And then um, by then I was pretty sure I wanted to write the dissertation on Morelos. So when I got to Austin um, after 2008, um, continued to uh, study Morelos and would go summers to uh, collect more archival materials and of course spent about um, seven eight months during my research year collecting more materials expanded the study to also include the 1930s and um, that was that was how the book came about how, how the idea for the book came about 
Well, I, I think it can be really hard to pick an end date, but you have a nice, neat rebellion at the end of this time period to tie it up as well. So let's, let's get into what the book is actually about, because it definitely gives readers a good account of what happens in Morandos after Zapata. So perhaps first, you could quickly summarize how Morandos experienced the revolution and who Zapata was for the rare listeners who, who maybe need a little brush up. Sure. So Morelos was the center of the agrarian revolution of the, uh, the 1910 Mexican Revolution. Um, it was a decade long civil war. Um, you know, close to upwards of a, of a million people died in the conflict and many migrated to the United States. So it was a very chaotic um, time period that transformed uh, 20th century Mexico. And as I mentioned, um, Emiliano Zapata, he was from Morelos, and that was where some of the most intense agrarian upheaval had occurred. And Morelos itself was uh, devastated by the fighting. Um, many villages were in ruins. The haciendas were in ruins. The state lost some two-fifths of its population. Some fled to Mexico City. Of course, many died in the fighting. And um, the fighting went on for 10 years. And Emiliano Zapata, um, you know, he became a, mas- a national figure in the 1910s and, um, you know, very much the, the agrarian leader of the Mexican Revolution. And um, many of the causes and ideals he fought for spilled over into uh, neighboring states as well. Many um, uh, peasants revolt in the name of uh, of Zapata calling themselves Zapatistas. And uh, Zapata was killed in 1919 uh, in a a betrayal where he was lured into a hacienda and um, he was killed. And the the Zapatista movement kind of splintered after that. And um, the fighting ended up coming to an end in 1920 um, with the revolt of uh, Álvaro Obregón who came to power in 1920. And um, Obregón comes to power in 1920 and course, uh, he needed to make alliances. And he reached out to the Zapatistas, the ones that were remaining in the field still. And um, he promised them if they would, in exchange for supporting his government, he promised them um, the ability to carry out a land reform in the 1920s and 30s. And um, that's, you know, there's been things written about the, um, the land reform in Morelos in the 1920s and 30s, but um, just little bits and pieces here and there, a chapter here and there. And um, from my uh, archival research trips, it was pretty clear that there was a lot of material that had not been touched in the archives um, to cover the land reform in the 1920s and 30s. And in 1920, they basically start to reconstruct the world and put things back together. Um, People who had fled to Mexico City uh, from Morelos, they start to return to their villages and they begin to literally reconstruct their communities. And land reform begins. And um, people start to flock to the region as well for the promise of land. And uh, that was um, kind of an overview of um, how the, the 1920s started. That background makes clear that there are, there are many topics that historians need to know need to be explored. Your, your book, that manages to cover a whole lot of them, and it's, it's just a crisp 174 pages, and it manages to explore education, state formation, water rights, forestry, agriculture. The, the breadth is really extraordinary. But your first chapter obviously talks about Pueblo politics. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So I covered, uh, encountered a, an abundance of archival material in the, um, in, in the archives and documents pertaining to uh, politics in Morelos in the 1920s and 30s. And it was so much that um, uh, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to focus on uh, when it came to the politics. Did I want to um, focus on individual governors and their relationships with the Pueblo or their individual policies and elections? And um, as I started to write the chapter, and it was, as I mentioned, it was one of the longest uh, 
it was one of the chapters that I worked the most on. And I decided that the best way to uh, tell this story was to keep the narrative focused on the Pueblos and specifically their relationship with the state government and the federal government. And um, I felt like that helped to keep the, the first chapter uh, cohesive without going out and going out on uh, tangents that um, uh, didn't specifically um, keep the analysis on the Pueblos. And um, in the 1920s is when the agrarian reform began in Morelos. And the first governor from 1920 to 1923 was Jose Padres, and he had been a, a medic in the Zapatista army. And so he was a civilian and he was chosen to become the provisional governor in the early 1920s. And it was pretty clear from uh, his governorship that there was going to be big problems between the Pueblos and the state government. And um, chief among those problems was as the state governors, they wanted to build a loyal political clientele in the, in the Pueblos. And the problem is they went about uh, doing that using authoritarian means. And specifically, they would often impose their loyal supporters in municipal elections. And that caused all types of upheaval in the, in these, um, in the villages because, of course, it was, it was anti-democratic and it overrode village patriotism. And as soon as that began, those types of conflicts in the early 1920s, we see this pattern where the villagers would uh, reach out to the federal government and their conflicts with these state governors. And they would petition and lobby the federal government to uh, come down on their side against these, um, some of these governors. And you know, in the mid-1920s was a very chaotic period. There was six or seven uh, inter interim and provisional governors that came and went um, during this very chaotic political period. And um, a lot of that was due to the Pueblos petitioning and lobbying the federal government, um, complaining about these abuses, um, over, uh, about them overriding elections. And the federal government would often uh, intervene on the behalf of the Pueblos. And so we see this relationship between the countryside and, and the federal government uh, forming. And it was particularly um, over the Pueblos' opposition to specific state governors in the 1920s. And over time, um, these bonds between the federal government and the rural communities are, uh, they become stronger. And at the same time, the, uh, the state government is weakened. And, you know, the, the Morelos state government being so close to Mexico City um, has always been kind of overshadowed by the power of the federal government. And we, we see that occurring in the, uh, in the 1920s. And, you know, by the 1930s, um, the, the governors are, are, are still important, but um, they have to have a better relationship with the Pueblos. Um, if not, what we see is there will be uh, political upheaval. And um, if there's some type of uh, abuse that the governor is committing in, the, in rural communities, then the, uh, the, the countryside reaches out to the federal government and asks them to intervene. And that was, it was a pattern that um, was set in the 1920s. And, but over time, thankfully, by the 1930s, the, the state government kind of it, it, it learns how to govern rural Morelos and specifically um, by... Uh, respecting the outcomes of local elections. And um, that was how the federal government state authority, state government were able to reassert authority over the countryside by respecting, um, you know, village sovereignty, as I elaborated on in the introduction. One of the things that I really enjoy about this chapter is that you capture the whole story very clearly, but then another thing you do is not let the Pueblos merge into this sort of homogenous mass of, of something like the people. Your book surveys the differences and divides both within communities and then between neighboring communities. 
And I think that's an intervention that I found really refreshing here and that a lot of Latin American history would benefit from. Yes. So that was um, as one of the advantages about working on this topic was that um, many anthropologists had studied in Morelos. They had produced ethnographies, you know, going back as far as the 1920s with uh, Robert Redfield living in the village of Tepotzlan in 1926 and 1927, and later with Oscar Lewis, who produced some uh, well-known works on on the study of of Tepotzlan as well. And the anthropologists provided me the theory um, of whether of how to think about these communities. And, you know, there was a big debate and it goes beyond just uh, Morales in Mexico, but also includes studies of peasant communities in Africa and Asia. And um, many scholars have written about uh, these rural communities as being these very cohesive, um, very cohesive, egalitarian uh, rural communities where everybody, uh, all the members of the community are working together in unison and they're very um, uh, skeptical of outsiders and they uh, redistribute uh, surplus wealth among themselves. And these are kind of like portrayed as um, what I would just call the good Pueblo, the well-behaved Pueblo. And, um, and on the other hand, uh, particularly from um, Oscar Lewis's study and others, the way um, anthropologists and other scholars have written about the uh, Pueblos is kind of from the, uh, the opposite angle, is that, no, these are divided communities, and they're divided by um, economics and class and also by race. And um, rather than being these little democracies, instead they are um, uh, fiefdoms of uh, caciquismo, where one individual dominates the community and um, it's anything but a, a cohesive community. So I had these two visions and these, the, uh, of, of these rural communities, and they help, those um, visions helped me to make sense of um, village behaviors, why certain uh, communities are acting in certain ways. And um, as I... Uh, analyzed the, the abundant archival documentation of uh, all these village conflicts, um, I began to see that there were different types of communities. And some were indeed cohesive uh, communities that were um, very uh, they were able to control their resources. And there was not a lot of internal conflict, at least what I could tell from the documentation. While on the other hand, there were indeed communities that were um, racked uh, by um, factionalism and divisions, and there would be sometimes um, uh, a large, uh, you know, many landless families in the com- community because um, the family that administered the the, uh, the village's lands was favoring their you know, their friends and family over others. And so I found both types of communities, and I tried to identify which ones were like that. And um, it was also important to be able to explain why was that the case? Why were these communities this way? And as I um, did that, it also became clear that uh, these communities weren't static. They could change over time. And so, you know, one community, for example, could be quite cohesive in the early 1920s, but the newcomers come throughout the decade and they migrate into the Pueblo. And by the 30s, the community is is racked by divisions. And so um, I saw Pueblos evolving over time. For the rest of the book, you do a, a great job of showing how the united and divided Pueblos navigated these sorts of issues. In your second chapter, you get into the forest usage and clearance in this time period. Could you tell us a little bit about the for- about forestry and this chapter? Sure. So chapter two was um, specifically on the um, on the land reform, and um, the forest became a, an important issue as well. Uh, Northern Morelos, you know, Morelos is a small state, only about five thousand square kilometers, and but it's it's pretty impressive um, the, the diverse range of its geography. And so in the north, you have the Ajusco Mountains and um, very uh, forested. 
And uh, those t- communities in the north were uh, a little bit different. They were tended to be more indigenous communities in the north of the state. And then the, the big difference, though, was that they didn't practice commercial agriculture. Um, of course, they, they had mostly secondary lands and they didn't have access to uh, much irrigation water. So they grew mainly um, uh, subsistence foods such as uh, corn and beans in the north. Um, but also, as I mentioned in that chapter, what was important for the northern communities um, ability to sustain themselves was exploitation of forest resources and in particular the um, the expansion of uh, charcoal production in Morelos in the 1920s and historically those northern communities had depended on uh, seasonal work on sugar plantations in the lowlands but the sugar plantations were in ruins and it requires a lot of capital to uh, build a sugar mill capital that wasn't there in the 1920s and the early 1930s. So these communities in the north, they turned to producing uh, charcoal in the forest. And I go into um, some detail about how how charcoal is produced. And it was a very um, rudimentary way of, of producing charcoal. Basically, you make an oven in the forest, you chop down um, some uh, an oak tree, and you uh, you roast the wood. And it, you know, it takes 24 to 48 hours and to um, to uh, roast the wood right there in the middle of the uh, of the forest. And um, it being an environmental history, um, it was pretty clear that there was some deforestation going on as a result of this um, uh, charcoal economy. And a lot of the bureaucrats from Mexico City that were visiting Morelos in the 1920s and 30s, they were usually complaining about um, you know, how destructive the, uh, the charcoal economy was. And, um, you know, what the biggest threat I found was this, just the danger of forest fires, because if you have an oven there and you're roasting wood, um, if you abandon the oven, um, it could very easily uh, catch fire and spread and create a forest fire. And um, so that was what was going on in the northern communities. And of course, the heartland of Zapatismo is in the um, in the lowlands and the old uh, where the old sugar plantations were. And that's where the irrigation waters are, the, the water that comes off the mountains and um, down through the rivers and uh, many spring waters as well at the base of the mountains. And so that's where commercial agriculture thrived. And uh, I found in those communities, um, particularly uh, that I focus on at the beginning of uh, the second chapter, um, as the land reform is um, being carried out, you know, the best in the early 20s and in the, in the mid 20s, the, the best lands were being redistributed, the, the irrigable fields where the um, where you could grow crops year round. Um, I found a lot of conflicts between uh, the ejidatarios, right, the ejidos uh, that had been redistributed uh, to these communities during these years. And, uh, and all the, um, there was always a group of smallholders that held you know, small ranches and small farms as private property in these communities. And those smallholders, they ended up being the ones who opposed the agrarian reform on the ground because they, of course, felt threatened by the agrarian reform and they felt that you know, their lands would be taken and incorporated into ejidos. And this is also kind of part of this process of um, uh, uh, central, political centralization because as these conflicts between the ejidatarios and the smallholders unfold, uh, the smallholders tend to latch on to the municipal governments the traditional municipal governments um, of these communities. There's uh, about 30 municipalities in Morelos and they dominate the municipal government and they dominate the elections. And and on the other hand, the ejidatarios, um, they use the ejido and the institutions that go along with the ejido 
to uh, form stronger alliances with national authorities in Mexico City in order to oppose the smallholders. So this is also how we see um, the federal government gaining a, a stronger hold in Morelos in the, uh, in the 1920s by these battles between the smallholders and the hidatarios. And so the, there's a sweeping agrarian reform that's carried out in the 1920s. Um, the, the haciendas system is, is dismantled. Uh, many haciendas, they do hold on to some lands, but they're mainly secondary lands. Again, the, the best lands were being redistributed. And um, something, some, uh, you know, three-fourths of the peasantry had access to lands by 1930. So it was a sweeping agrarian reform. And um, neighboring states and campesinos, peasants from neighboring states, uh, they were attracted to the promise of land in Morelos. So we see, um, particularly from the state of Guerrero, to the west of, of, of Morelos, many peasants start to move in to uh, pueblos in Morelos, seeking land, particularly in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. And uh, that tends to uh, create tensions as well, because you have these newcomers, uh, they want land, but they don't have access to it. And so by the mid-1930s, with the rise of uh, Lázaro Cárdenas and the, um, uh, kind of, um, the years of the, of the great national land reform, in Morelos, um, a second phase of the agrarian reform is carried out. And um, many of the hilos of the 1920s, they were extended uh, later in the 1930s, so more people had access to land. And it wasn't the, the second phase of the agrarian reform wasn't nearly as sweeping as an, and as impressive as the reform in the 1920s, um, but nonetheless, it did help facilitate uh, these newcomers to the villages in Morelos gain access to lands. And um, the second phase of the agrarian reform goes on basically until um, about the end of Lázaro Cárdenas' presidency in 1940, when I end the study. Then in your next chapter, you, you describe what these victorious ejidos do as a, a hydraulic revolution. And I really love this term because it, you use it to push back on the idea that campesinos just want to grow corn and beans and stay in their small towns. Could you tell us a little bit about this Zapatista hydraulic revolution and, and what it meant? Sure. Uh, so water is a um, very important and kind of a, a new hot topic in the study of uh, the agrarian reform in post-revolutionary Mexico. And um, thankfully, I had access to the Archivo Histórico de Lawa in Mexico City. It's a, it's a water archive. And um, it opened in the 1990s, I believe. But it wasn't really cataloged until about a decade later. And um, when I went to uh, first study in that archive, um, it ended up being a, a, just a fantastic facility. It was very easy to access resources, well cataloged, well organized. And um, that, of course, the whole archive just focused on uh, water conflicts in the countryside. And when you read about the history of Morelos and the Zapatista Revolution, of course, the, the famous slogan is land and liberty. And you know, historians and anthropologists have written plenty about land conflicts um, before and uh, during and after the, the Mexican Revolution. And so having all this access to these water conflicts really shed um, a lot of new light on uh, these disputes that were going on in the countryside during these years. And it really helped me, um, I think, to draw out um, the most original aspects of the study. And there, water was significant um, for, for several reasons, as you mentioned. Um, first, um, water and ir irrigation allowed you to grow crops year-round. And it, of course, allowed you to grow uh, commercial crops. And previously it had been sugar in Morelos. And as I write about um, in the following chapter, it was the rice industry. Uh, and rice, of course, requires a lot of water. 
And so, uh, you know, that show and, and that showed that uh, these rural communities, you know, they didn't fight a revolution just to uh, retreat to their fields and um, grow subsistence crops, but they were indeed open to uh, commercial agriculture, specifically production of rice. And they were also open to engaging the state over rice production because the, later in the 1920s, the, uh, the federal government, the federal government seeks to uh, regulate the sale of rice in, in Morelos. And it was um, it was just really impressed by all the original materials I was able to find on um, on water in Morelos during these years, and um, the big theme coming out of these documents was just how much conflict there was over water. Of course, water is a shared resource, and it was very common during these years for the um, the highland or the the, the the pueblos that are at a higher elevation to uh, control the flow of water as it went southwards to the uh, lower level uh, elevation of communities. And of course that created a whole host of conflicts. And when you have, you know, the small community of, of just 200 people is uh, having its water taken by the, you know, the big municipality of two or 3000 people upstream, you would have the small community reach out to the federal government for help and help in um, retaining control of their water. And so, again, this process of getting the federal government to play a stronger role in the, um, in the allocation of natural resources uh, was taking place through these water conflicts as well. And, and we see uh, water conflicts as well between the hidatarios and the, um, the smallholders throughout uh, Morelos also. And water was also significant because access to water and good irrigation works. It, it more than doubled the value of land. And... Um, and you could grow crops year round and uh, specifically um, commercial crops. But also I found there was even some cases where they were growing, uh, not many, but they were growing corn year round on the, um, on the irrigable plots in, in Morelos. Well, there are so many delicious examples in this chapter. My favorite is an example of a group of workers on Hacienda who received land from the government, which is nominally the whole Zapatista dream, only to find out that the land is almost entirely worthless because of all the water uh, for the hacienda is being used up by neighboring pueblos who had successfully petitioned for water rights. Uh, and you've already pre previewed this, but this water becomes so important because of the rice culture that builds up in Chapter 4. Could you tell us a little bit about Morelos as the rice bowl of Mexico? Traditionally, sugar had been grown in Morelos. All the studies of Porfiri and Morelos before the revolution, of course, fo focused on sugar. Um, but rice was also grown in Morelos before the revolution. And um, you know, both sugar and rice require quite a bit of uh, irrigation and access to water. And so they kind of complement each other in that respect. And rice, as I learned uh, through this um, study, um, when you, a rice paddy actually um, fertilizes a field because um, water drains over it and it aerates the soil and um, it helps to spread um, nutrients throughout the soil. And so rice was always there, but because the sugar mills had been destroyed in the 1910s during the fighting, um, by 1920 and throughout the 20s, of course, there, there was talk of reviving the sugar industry, but there just wasn't the capital to, to do so. And that is when we see the expansion of uh, rice production in Morelos, because you didn't, you know, a rice mill um, is a lot cheaper than uh, constructing a sugar mill. And um, we see communities throughout the region producing more and more rice. And uh, rice was also a good crop to grow in Morelos, not only because there was uh, abundant irrigation sources, 
but also because uh, Morelos, even before the revolution, started to gain a reputation for having pr- for producing a very high quality grain of rice, and um, it had won international awards even before um, the revolution. And so farmers and hidatarios they were familiar with how to cultivate the crop um, by the by the time the 1920s rolls around, and. One thing that was quite interesting as well is that, you know, I didn't find um, co- I didn't find anybody coercing the Pueblos to cultivate rice. It wasn't like the state, the federal government had a specific program to um, uh, stimulate the, the expansion of rice production. This, this, the federal government doesn't even get involved in the rice market until later in the 1920s. And um, so, in other words, uh, Campesinos and these villagers, they were responding to high market prices because, of course, commodity prices in the 1920s were generally increasing. And, and that was definitely the case with rice. And um, so, it, again, it shows they were open to, um, to market forces and to commercial agriculture. And so it starts to spread uh, the cultivation of rice in, in the 1920s and the 1930s. And, and you know, so much rice was being produced that it was, you know, we could call it a, a rice bowl that was being um, uh, basically um, uh, taking hold in Morelos during those years. And later in the 1920s, um, there, there was a problem with uh, traditional creditors um, loaning out money to campesinos early in the agricultural season around February and March. So they'd have the tools and the credit they needed to um, establish a rice farm. But the problem was, and there was always complaints about these traditional creditors and merchants how they would abuse um, uh, their position to uh, make money and off the campesinos and to speculate in the rice market. So they would they would advance money early in the year to the campesinos, and um, they would say, you know, I'm going to pay uh, I'm going to pay you uh, X number of centavos for um, or pesos for X amount of rice that you deliver to me. Well, the problem was is that later in the uh, during the harvest season, when the fall came, the, the, the value of rice was was much higher. So the, the peasants were receiving um, a lower value for their rice crop than they would have otherwise. And so, because of all these complaints and um, writing, these villagers writing to the to the uh, to the federal government over the abuses committed by these creditors. In about 1926, 1927, the, the uh, federal government begins that it wants to cut out the rice uh, middlemen, cut, cut out the creditors, and it itself will uh, uh, issue credit to the campesinos to um, support the rice economy in Morelos. And the problem there was is that 1927, 1928 are exactly precisely when commodity prices started to go down, and that was the case with, with rice. And so as the prices for um, rice went down and just as the state gets involved in uh, the rice economy, there started to be conflicts between the, the rice producers and the, uh, the federal bank and the, the federal um, bureaucrats and agronomists over um, the, the prices of rice paid to the campesinos. And of course, the Great Depression hits. So these conflicts continue into, and through the early 1930s. And it's not till you know, the mid-late 1930s, when the price of rice goes back up, that the conflicts over rice prices between the federal government and villagers um, decreases. Your next chapter gets into the latest and biggest conflict to occur in this period, the rebellion led by a man named Noodle and his family. Could you tell us a little bit about the Noodle Rebellion? Sure. So his name was El Tagarin, which means the noodle. 
And um, supposedly that was his nickname because um, uh, he was he was he was very thin and skinny. And that had just been his nickname since I, I think he was a child or, or a teenager. And he had, was from the rice country in the in Morales in the lowlands. And um, he was the youngest of uh, several brothers and all of his, uh, I think he had three or four older brothers and they all had fought in the revolution. And he himself fought in the revolution, but he was quite young. He was a teenager during those years. And um, I believe all three of his brothers were also killed during the revolution. And um, later in the 1920s, I wasn't able to find too much about his life in the 1920s, except that uh, he had settled down to produce rice and um, as in he had that, and later he had moved to um, the southeastern part of Morelos. And by the um, mid-1930s, around 1934, there was a, um, a gubernatorial election. And the state government was, was starting to gain more authority and more power as, as, as time uh, passed on. And there was an again there was a, there was a kind of a, an abusive state governor in um, in 1934, and there was a lot of reforms, of course, that were going on in Mexico during those years. Um, there was a constitutional reform that um, uh, started to promote socialist education, a more radical form of education in rural Mexico that um, uh, included a lot of um, uh, anti-religious, anti-Catholic messages. And um, in 1934, when his rebellion broke out. Um, he had been uh, campaigning, not for governor, but he had been supporting um, one of the opposition uh, uh, candidates to the presidency during that year. And the governor of Morelos at the time didn't like him for that. And there was some type of conflict during a, um, a, a religious holiday in um, his home, uh, his community of Tepalcingo, where um, there was a shootout and El Tallarín, Enrique Rodriguez, as, as his name was, um, he was forced to flee and go underground in 1934. And um, that was when he decided he was going to revolt because the governor had it out for him. And um, and so he goes underground and he revolts in 1934. And the revolt goes on for, for four years. And it wasn't, you know, a spectacularly large revolt. I think no more than probably 100, 150 of supporters with him and his guerrilla band at the time. But it was a it was a thorn in the side for the uh, national government. And he, and El Tayarín gains his reputation in the newspapers for being, you know, this like kind of bandit or Robin Hood figure. And um, it seems to be when you read the papers, it's, it's like there's all this myth surrounding him. And uh, historians had mentioned El Tayarín here and there in studies, um, but there wasn't a lot about him. And, and as I was doing archival research, um, I started to find bits and information about his rebellion and what was going on um, in the various archives I was consulting. And the big question with his revolt was, you know, why exactly was he revolting? Because he, he had his guerrilla band, 100, 150 supporters up in the mountains, and they were always um, carrying out guerrilla tactics. Um, but he also had supporters in many communities throughout Morelos. And um, particularly um, parents of school children, um, the, where the children were attending the, uh, the the schools where the primary schools where they were uh, teaching socialist education during these years and these um, these secular values that they were promoting in rural schools. And so the question was, what were the causes of this rebellion? Why, why exactly did he rebel? And uh, you know, I found a few reasons. Um, obviously, there was the political reason that he had revolted. 
Um, he wasn't accepted by the the, um, the national party that had started to form in the uh, the 1930s, the PNR, and the governor had it out for him. So there was some some political reasons, um, but also um, he had cited socialist socialist education in one of his manifestos when he revolted. And a lot of his supporters who start to oppose the federal government just at the ground level in the villages, um, they are also speaking out against this socialist education and this you know, broadcasting atheist values, atheistic values into um, rural communities. And, you know, there were cases that I found where um, teachers were killed because they were preaching these secular values in these communities. And so there was a religious component to his rebellion as well. And um, also, uh, when he revolted in 1934, um, I found there was um, an agrarian component to his revolt because this was um, right before the second phase of the agrarian reform had begun. And so you had um, agrarian tensions in communities with, with the landless population increasing. And um, the federal government, you know, when he revolts, the federal government, you know, it would even uh, bureaucrats, they would write, you know, there's a need to accelerate the redistribu redistribution of lands in Morelos in, other, in, in order to um, undermine El Tayarin's rebellion. So there were some agrarian tensions uh, in, in, in Pueblos as well that uh, contributed to his rebellion. So there was basically um, you know, kind of three components. It was a political component to why he revolted um, and a religious and agrarian component as well. And then, of course, the, the chapter ends with Cardenas making enough changes and promises and compromises that the rebellion comes to an end. And uh, with the end of the rebellion, this 20-year period of state permission that you've written about also comes to Yes. And, um, you know, kind of interesting in his story as well was that he was, he was up in the hills revolting El Tayarin for four years. And during those four years, there, of course, was a, a, a gubernatorial election. And his, his cousin wins the governorship in Morelos in 1938. And so that in many ways kind of offered him a way out. Uh, somebody he, he could trust in, um, in, in uh, um, uh, surrendering to the federal government. And so his, um, when his cousin becomes governor, his cousin um, consults with Lázaro Cárdenas about um, giving El Tayarín an amnesty. And um, they send an uncle out to find El Tayarín in the mountains. And um, he was persuaded to uh, give up his arms and um, to return to a... Um, a, a, a life in the countryside, but he actually joins his um, his cousin and his governorship. And I'm not actually, I wasn't able to clarify exactly how he died. I know he died shortly after the rebellion and supposedly it was from um, getting involved in some of the political clashes that his uh, cousin and the governorship was involved in. A fascinating rebel for a fascinating topic. Obviously land, liberty, and water is worth the read and a close study. Could you also tell us about what's next for you? What's the next topic you're working on? Sure. So I am working um, more on the rice industry now in Mexico. And uh, the rice chapter, the fourth chapter, it was the last one I wrote. There wasn't an archive that I found that, you know, just had everything on rice that I needed. And so over time, um, I was able to um, collect bits and pieces of, of information on the, um, the rice industry in Morelos. And very little has been written about rice in Mexico. Um, if you compare it to other crops such as, you know, coffee or sugar or henequen. And um, so I, that was the last chapter I wrote. And as I was writing it uh, and, and, and researching more about it, there were a lot of big historiographical questions about the origins of rice cultivation in the Americas. And there's a big debate um, 
uh, about that. And um, it really, you know, I started to look into the history of rice in Mexico and there really wasn't a lot there. Um, I, I know, in, but everything you read about it is that it, it, rice had arrived with the conquistadors as early as 1519, 1520, when they arrived in Veracruz. There's references to them having a bag of rice as soon as they landed. And, um, you know, I found a little bit more about rice cultivation along the Gulf Coast during the colonial period. And I was um, able to um, identify some other regions in Mexico where uh, rice has been produced. And so that's what I'm working on now, the history of uh, the rice industry in Mexico. And not sure exactly um, the time frame of the study. Right now, I'm just reading as much secondary literature as I can and um, taking notes and uh, brainstorming and um, putting together a grant proposal for a future project on it. And um, I'm also, it might not just, um, it might not just be a book or a, a research project on rice in Mexico, but perhaps maybe even rice in the America or in Latin America. Because uh, as I learned about rice elsewhere in the Caribbean and places like Brazil and South America, there's works on rice and studies of it. But it, again, it's one of those crops that's surprisingly not been studied to the extent that uh, other crops in the Americas have been. And I'm excited to have you back on when that is completed to talk about that book. Uh, there's definitely a lot of literature on rice in the English-speaking world, but your chapter in this book is absolutely right that there's a, a gap on where rice culture came from and, and what it means in Mexican. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so one of the, you know one of the questions um, I'm perhaps going to be looking at is um, not just rice production in the industry itself, but um, also consumption. And so that's when we get into kind of a food history as well and um, a cultural history also. Well, that is very exciting. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about your book. And thank you, Salvador, and have a great day. You too.